Call it. Call it, yes. For a whole lot. Just call it. Welcome to episode 62 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched a neo-noir double bill of the 2019 film Motherless Brooklyn and 2018's Under the Silver Lake. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there with any feedback or recommendations. Peace. So just before we got started, I just wanted to give a shout out to, I know in the last week's episode, we talked a little bit about some films that are quite hard to get hold of, such as uh, The Year My Voice Broke. And, you know, me and you, we're quite comfortable just walking into our local blockbuster, perusing mm. the shelves, handing over our membership card and renting and renting yes. that on VHS. But some other people might not be that comfortable doing that. So I just wanted yeah. to give a shout out a good place where you can locate stuff like that. All of John Digan's films are on archive.org, which is the internet wow. archive. So they can be downloaded there. And this might come in useful when we get round to the toss at the end of the episode, depending who wins. But especially if you look back for films in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they're quite hard to get hold of. You can often find them on archive.org. Really? I've never known that at all. It's true. So you can find all of John Digan's old films there from the 70s and 80s. I mean, that's a good place for them to end up, I suppose, given, you know, he's probably been written out of history in a way. That is correct. He seems to have been written out of history, despite that being a really good movie starring two people who went on to quite a bit of success. He's got a film coming out this year, I think, but I don't think he'll be hitting the heights of his previous projects. And if he were, had been in any way more successful, there would be people protesting outside it. His weirdest career move was directing the Steve Coogan film The Parole Officer in the early 2000s. I like that film. Yeah, but it was a bit weird. It was kind of not funny enough to be full comedy and not mm. sort of, I don't know, action adventure enough to be that. The other thing that I would say to people is if, you're, if you actually don't have a local blockbuster near you, um, if, you just, uh, if you just message uh, the show directly, I'd be happy to lend my copy. That's right. We can <laughs> we can uh, fast track a uh, mini disc, a laser disc, something directly to you. Yeah, yeah, Beat yeah. to no max. Issue doing that. Whatever you share want, we'll send it directly to your door That's worldwide. So in this week's episode, we're just going to be talking <laughs> about two films, and that's it. That's it. We watched Motherless Brooklyn from 2019, and we watched Under the Silver Lake from 2018. Indeed. Motherless Brooklyn was uh, my choice. I had been looking forward to it for quite some time. I really liked the cut of Edward Norton's jib when he did uh, a few different promotional interviews uh, for it. I heard him on uh, Brian Koppelman's podcast, The Moment, on Joe Rogan, and also I think he did an episode of Tim Ferriss, which was my favorite. It's, it talks about his process and everything. Yeah, um, so he really had me gunning for this one. I haven't actually seen his the first film he directed, but... Um, Keeping the faith, sounds, I have. That's the one with, uh, what, Ben Stiller, and he's a rabbi, and Edward Norton is a priest, and they both fancy this lady. Yeah, they both fancy Dharma from Dharma and Greg. Off of Dharma and Greg, cool. Yes. 
She's such Actually a free playing spirit. the character of Dharma. She, you're such a free spirit, Dharma. What's that? Is that Family Guy or something? That's from Family Guy, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually back, like Family Guy, I think for three or four seasons was genuinely great. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I, I've been looking forward to this for ages. I liked the sound of what it was about. I liked how passionate uh, Edward Norton seemed to be about it. And um, I actually got into quite a bit of the lore of um, the character that Alec Baldwin was based on that he was discussing a lot of at the time who apparently I, I believe he's got some I don't know his father had a feud with this guy or something his, or his grandfather James his grandfather James so Edward Norton's grandfather James Rouse was the anti-Robert Moses Robert Moses is the the real guy that the Moses Moses Randolph Alec Baldwin character is based on and uh, James Rouse was famous for uh, setting up an ethical and cultural center, a, a town called Columbia, Maryland, where basically every race and gender all held hands and sang songs in the streets and there were rainbows and puppy dogs. Well, no offense, but that sounds like a bunch of commie gobbledygook to me. <laughs> that's, that's factual. I think it, it is a nice place. It's a, a famous residence uh, have included uh, Oprah Winfrey. Among where others. is it? Just outside of D.C., so often people who've worked in D.C., maybe worked in politics or studied at Georgetown or somewhere have lived in this place. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's completely sticking it to the man. What would make him the anti-Robert Moses? In that he did things in an ethical way. How much have you read about Robert Moses or dug into uh, his I read story? A, I dug a nice bit back in back when this film actually came out without actually watching the film I looked into him but I, I probably a lot of it has fallen by the wayside I've had um, the Pulitzer Prize winning book about him in my Amazon basket for about the two years broker. as well yeah that's right I read something that like during the pandemic a lot of journalists have made a point of having a copy of the power broker in their background in their like on their shelves and zoom calls and stuff really yeah that's funny I watched a video, I'll put it in the show notes, I watched uh, just a a kind of quick 20-minute YouTube bio video by Robert Moses called The Man Who Built Modern New York. I also got a hold of the film Citizen Jane, which is a documentary about Jane Jacobs, who in this film there's a character called Gabby Horowitz that's based on Jane Jacobs. And Jane okay. Jacobs got into a fight with Robert Moses and eventually successfully managed to cancel the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which was a planned highway that would have crossed the southern tip of Manhattan. It was going to go through Greenwich Village and Soho. I mean, but the guy was some a gangster, of, some of the, essentially. Some of the typical Robert Moses stories, the, some of the things that he did were... Allegedly, he was racist. He built bridges. He he was responsible for a lot of the build the bridges that connected Manhattan with the other boroughs of New York. But they were specifically designed to be to to have roofs too low down to fit public buses. And the idea yeah. was that kind of poorer residents of the city wouldn't be able to take public transport and use those bridges and get to the other boroughs. And then there were some other things included, like keeping the temperature a few degrees colder in swimming pools, because the idea at the time was that black people didn't like the cold and wouldn't be able to tolerate lower temperatures in a swimming pool. Jesus. And apart he from that, he... some of the stuff that you see in the film of basically like kicking people out um, mm -hmm. of their neighborhoods and then rehousing them in shitty areas, 
which ended up as slums. He's he's exactly the type of character that would warrant his own section and probably an arc in an Adam Curtis film. I have to trust you on that one. Yeah, yeah, I'm bringing up Adam Curtis again, but it, this is exactly the sort of semi-obscure historical figure that he would dig up and wield a whole narrative around. Did you like the film? I did. It's it's flawed, yes. I would say, but I enjoyed it. I thought the first 30 minutes are a bit rough, uh, but when Alec Baldwin's Moses Randolph's introduced, I think things start to pick up again. It moves along at a pretty good pace, I thought, despite the fact that it's like two and a half hours long. It's got yeah. a great score from Daniel Pemberton and that vocal track with Tom York with Flea on trumpet. And the cinematography's by Dick Pope. I know, yeah, Mike Lee's boy. Yeah, so this is his third podcast appearance after old Topsy Turvy and Vera Drake. I really liked it as well, but to a point, like I enjoyed the story a lot. And I enjoyed, I and when it initially came out, I enjoyed reading about the lore around it. Um, and I would like to read The Power Broker someday. It sounds like an interesting story. And I thought Norton's central performance, it, like it has the potential of being way too much, but I think it's not. I think he's really good, actually. And like many of the stars like kind of ham the fuck out of it, I suppose, in a way that one kind of gets the feeling that Norton was actually directing people to act in that kind of old Hollywood style, which I think actually everybody does really well, except Bruce Willis. For some reason, I just I thought Bruce Willis was awful in this. Whether I don't know whether it's the modernity of the faces or the I thought maybe the cinematography was a little bit too pristine. Something kind of persistently put me out of the film, I felt. And I was still with it all the way, but only about 70 percent, I'd say. The strongest bits for me were the stuff in the jazz club, the death of the the death of the big guy near the end, I thought was really well done. And the pool scene with Alec Baldwin at the end, I thought was great as well. And the, the score worked fantastically. Yeah. I especially that yeah the Tom track and there's another I've been listening to it a little bit there's one called Daily Battles which I quite liked yeah that's the yeah. the Tom York vocal is that, is that the Tom York the, mm. the, the it's Daily called Daily Battles Battles I might actually do my own version for the end of the podcast do it so I listen like out for that yeah I don't know I think the main barrier for me was actually the the cinematography I didn't really like it I thought like um Janice Kaminsky, who works with Spielberg, the kind of stuff that he got for the likes of Bridge of Spies, or even the visual tone that like um, Fincher movies have had since The Social Network, I thought would have been better for this, a little bit more muted. I thought it was, it kind of brought me to mind of, you know, you know the way Public Enemies is just too HD? God, I can't watch that. Yes. I know what you mean. There's something weird about seeing people in period costumes, but then in what looks almost like 60 frames a second or something, you know? And seeing seeing a period thing that 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 looks like kind of that, that was shot on video or has that it's just yeah it looks weird I agree completely also, and that's definitely I think happened here. Anybody who knows anything about the history of New York, I'm like this is such nitpicking stuff, but it it just bothered me as well. Knows that the New York in which this is shot and shown is just way too clean. <laughs> it's just sparkling like. Didn't you get that sense? Didn't you feel that? Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of aspects of that. I, I feel like the way that Ed Norton... I mean, a lot of the criticism around this film is that Ed Norton was originally slated to play this character uh, in 1999 when the book came out. Correct. When he, when he was 30 years old, and instead he made it when he was 50 years old. I, to me, that's one of the biggest problems here is that he's too old. He looks yes. a bit like a Muppet at times. He's supposed to be playing like a kind of a young lackey to Bruce Willis's character, but it just he's 50. You're going like, really? You're still there? That doesn't seem yeah. right. 
you're too old to be doing that part. So I think he should have just either given it up. It's also weird to me that he's the type of actor that's so drawn to this. Like I remember in all those interviews, the ones that you yes. referenced, he was going on about like, oh, the opportunity to play a Tourette's character is the most, like for an actor, that's like the best thing ever. <laughs> I just look at it going like, really? Oof, that really? What you want to do? You want to pretend that you've got Tourette? You want to put on Tourette face? That seems inappropriate. He's already done the score, which was pretty dodgy in retrospect. I think he works. His performance works. I do completely agree with you about the age thing. That is kind of a little bit disjointing because everybody talks to him like he's a teenager, uh, which is weird. <laughs> yeah, hey, we're going to send the kid, the 50-year-old kid. Yeah, <laughs> this is it, yeah. Lots of it worked. Some of it didn't. Maybe if he had said it in the modern day, I don't know. He says that he, it just felt very hard-boiled and he he didn't feel that that was conducive to being said in 1999. But I figure, like, well, why the fuck not, you know? There was some criticism from Jonathan Latham, the, the author, who said that the transposition of the story from the book's contemporary time to the 50s and Latham's very literal interpretation of neo-noir characters means that... So Latham said... The alchemical quality of the written word makes it okay. But if you start photographing that, it's going to look like Halloween, like they're dressing up. It, at times, it feels like he's kind of cosplaying as this, like, yes. he, he wants to play this cool detective who goes to the jazz club and he's he's friends with all the black characters. <laughs> it just feels so... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's, there's, there's parts of this where he's talking to, like, the guys from The Wire. He's talking to, like, Omar and... Colvin, Major Colvin, and um, you know they're they're almost kind of going like you you know for a white cat you're pretty hip, Daddy O. And it, I it doesn't, think, doesn't sit well with me. I think people should generally be sort of careful about having so many roles in the same production. The likes of Clint Eastwood and Kevin Costner have done well out of it, but it just seems like it just seems like you're making the movie your one man show to me. Yeah, I think that this is clearly was a story that for some reason Norton was attracted to from first reading it. But then imagine, I I got the feeling about it, right? He takes this novel from 1999, guts it, sets it in the 1950s, takes some of the characters, completely rewrites the mystery, includes this Robert Moses character, which and then casts the actor from SNL who normally does Trump, ties yes. in all these modern Trump elements, and then he's also Norton's also got this link to his grandfather's fight with Robert Moses. And at a certain point, you're like, "What is this anymore? Like, is that is that okay as an adaptation? I feel like it should be its own thing. I don't think it's really fair on like Jonathan Lethem's novel, which I haven't read no. and will probably never read." No, but no, it, no, I, I, it, I, I thought the same. It does kind of yeah. scream of ego to me. Well, I don't know if I would sort of say it screams of ego, but it just seems like, why not just, why, why not, I don't know, just change the name and have Inspired By or something like that. Or like, you know, stick in loosely, queens. loosely, bit, yes, <laughs> something like that. I don't know, it's kind of like, uh, for example, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Yeah, like why, in why tie that into the Abel Ferrara film, yeah. Exactly, yeah. In what stretch of the imagination is that a remake? feels like we're picking at it. I suppose that feels about right to me, because I was really, really looking forward to this. And a number, like I said, I could get along well with it. There were parts of it I enjoyed more than others, but I was 
consists. I, I was being put out of the film a lot by various elements. I really enjoyed it. I I did enjoy it as a film. I thought the central mystery worked quite well. There were just a few moments from time to time where it was quite. I felt like some of the dialogue was a bit awkward. I don't know if that was on purpose, but especially like I say, the first thirty minutes was a bit rough. The stuff with Bruce Willis. But at a certain point, when the mystery kicks into gear, I was fully engaged. I was enjoying it. I felt like it was pretty clear what was going on for a lot of it until they introduced the kind of Chinatown elements, and then that sort of there was there was a twist there that was interesting enough. Bobby Cannavale kind of grated on me in it. I didn't know what he was trying to do. What do you mean that character? His performance. His performance. I thought it was. Just, but I thought a lot of the performances in it were odd, to be honest. I thought, um, what's her name? Leslie Mann, is it? Is yeah. that her name? Yeah, yeah. I thought Leslie Mann was another one that is like, what are you doing here? Are you. I suppose my main issues are not really fair to the film because it's a combination of how much I was looking forward to it. And I doubt it had much of a budget either. Just the setting didn't feel gritty enough for me. Like the story and the mystery, and you're right about that, everything was there. But just the texture of it wasn't, it wasn't as, I don't know, it wasn't a good, the period wasn't well achieved, I don't know, they just didn't, they didn't nail it for me. Like I said, this is why my favorite scenes in it would be in the jazz club, because the jazz club did feel genuine, like legit, from back in the day, let's say, or the, that uh, fight with the giant guy in the corridor on the, and then they're out on the fire escapes and, and stuff like that, that felt quite real to me. But any of the exteriors, no. I was just completely put out of the film. But is it going for the reality of what New York was like in the 50s or how New York was portrayed by Hollywood in the 50s? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't think it works either way. Because, I mean, the thing is, if you you wanted to go for how Hollywood portrayed it, you'd use different cinematography, you know? Look at what the Coens did with something like uh, Miller's Crossing. That kind of just saturation of the frame and everything it really does a job on like achieving a a past setting same with the likes of saving private ryan i just felt like and to be fair look somebody like michael mann he's mad into this we referenced public enemies earlier that high definition in the past setting Uh, for me no it's just i associate the past i think of the past the way celluloid cameras used to look you know not how it actually looked but how it was shown to me in in movies and when something doesn't quite match up to that, it bothers me, I suppose. Yeah, maybe it is like a budget limitation. I don't know. I don't know why I don't oh, know why Norton made that choice, but Cause it didn't I wouldn't bother say me they, too much. I wouldn't say they closed off streets for this or anything. I'd say they just, you know, rented a bunch of cars. There's a scene that's shot in the old Penn Station, which I think was knocked down in the sixties, and that's like totally CG green screened. Really? I mean, that looks pretty good, that part. It does. That does look good, but maybe all the budget yeah. went on that. I don't know. I guess maybe. This is the, maybe this is the look that he was going for. It's just, I don't know. It didn't bother me that much. It didn't bother me. I, it it didn't bother me like Public Enemies bothered me. That made mm. that film basically unwatchable. Yeah. Although, like, like enjoying Black Hat so much has made me think I might watch that again sometime, but I remember being really, I, I found that very difficult to watch, Public Enemies. You, but I have to say, I hadn't quite, noticed when i watched it the thing about edward norton's age but i feel like that might be a big factor in um my being at a distance from it as well because that is big because everybody talks to him like he's a child 
Another piece of criticism about the film was from uh, Marissa Martinelli from Slate, who said, Norton's film often feels less like an adaptation and more like a work of fan fiction 20 years in the making, with Norton borrowing Lethem's protagonist and the broad strokes of his plot to create something almost entirely new. I just, I like the idea of it as fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, he's putting himself as the hero in the story against his grandfather's greatest foe. I've seen a few people commenting on the portrayal of Tourette's, like that it is good, it's a very accurate depiction of someone with Tourette's, but I have to say, I preferred Nicolas Cage in Matchstick Man. <laughs> Hell yeah. Maybe that's less authentic, but like, I would much rather have that version. That was way more interesting to me. Like, Does the fact that Lionel Estrog suffers from this condition, does that do anything for you in the plot? How he interacts with people, I guess. I couldn't pinpoint a particular moment where I was like, the fact that he's got Tourette's really adds something to the story. Well... You make a very good point. I don't know, does it? The only thing it does contribute is occasionally people get slightly offended or it's funny. Yes. Is it funny? Occasionally. Because at like one he'll point, say, like, what's her name? Like, uh, tits. Yeah, or Laura, Laura Rose is like laughing at what he says and I'm kind of going like, really? Yeah, like yeah, in yeah 1957. right. 1957. Yeah, or like when he um, keeps blowing out the match that he's supposed to light for That's that lady. That's good. I like that. I yeah. do enjoy that. Him lighting the match three times and her just walking away aggravated. <laughs> yeah. Trump is... Sorry, Trump. Baldwin is like halfway <laughs> to his fair, Trump impression. You're, you're fair enough to start with Trump there. Yeah, yeah. Like Baldwin is halfway to his Trump impression a That's lot a of the time. Very, very clear choice. Yeah. And it's kind of... I don't know. Is it a good one? I don't know. I'm kind of bummed out by this. I was looking forward to this a lot. And well, um, Norton said that because of the result of the 2016 presidential election, that was one of the things that spurred him on to keep going with making sure the film got made. As he was bummed out by Trump, but I don't. Yeah, it is a bit. It's a bit full on. There's a there's a scene. I think it might be the scene at the end where they're kind of sitting in the bathhouse talking to each other, where it, there's definite kind of like locker room talk. <laughs> it is like a, you know and then I grabbed her by the pussy when he's talking about raping the yeah the black, literally the black maid yeah yeah it's, yeah it feels well, like they're full on just going for Trump on that well they are yeah they, that's the grabber that's basically the grabber by the pussy thing because he's just he's talking about um power and what you can yeah. do with power and, and all of that shit yeah it's I not took subtle. her or something I think he says he says I, I took her up against the towels um, and then he's like, uh, yeah, she uh, she could have changed job. She could have disappeared, but she didn't, etc. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, I think a much better choice and more interesting would be if Edward Norton had gone to play that character. And I don't know if he cast somebody like, I don't know. DJ Andrew Qualls. Garfield. DJ Qualls. Who's DJ Qualls again? <laughs> he was in Road Trip. He's like the nerdy guy from Road Trip. DJ Qualls, yes. <laughs> if he had cast someone like DJ or Jason Biggs. <laughs> yes, Biggs. And I think they should have gone for Sean William Scott for uh, Moses Randolph. Yes, absolutely. That's, that and then great. the that. lady, Laura Rose, should have been Nadia. And then you could get Sherman in as well. The Shermanator should have been involved. The Shermanator, yes. <laughs> yes. They I'm should have it. just remade this. It should be Tara Reed. Yes, Bring me Tara, Tara Reed. Bring me the head of Tara Reed. I mean, we I, shouldn't joke about Tara Reid. She's not doing so well. I'm sure she's fine. I've got one question for you. Only Go one only one cast member in this film has ever won an Oscar. Okay, if you can name the correct cast member without cheating, I will be immensely oh. shocked. 
A lot of uh, Oscar nominations in this cast, but only one yes. winner. I'll give you a clue. It's one of the baddies who was famous for doing Indian face back in the 80s. No, no idea. Who? Fisher Stevens. Who's Fisher Stevens in this? He's partnered up with the big guy. Is that Fisher Stevens? Yep. He won an Oscar for The Cove, the dolphin killing documentary. He was one of the producers. Oh, yeah. Enemy of the show, but friend of Johnny Five. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, ex-boyfriend of Phoebe Buffet. That's less. right. Literally everyone, I think, has been in Friends as a boyfriend or, yeah, like some kind of love interest for one of the characters. If you could be a love interest for any of the characters in Friends, who would it be for? Oh, definitely Chandler. You like Chandler? I would. Yeah, he's the, he's the funny one. <laughs> Have we talked about Matthew Perry? Have you listened to that Norm clip about Matthew Perry? Where he says, no. he, he spoke to, there, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes, but he spoke to Matthew Perry and like Matthew Perry has this, he, he said like, I have to, I've, I've come up with this new way of, of, of speaking, of, of doing comedy. And it's called like, it's called like Matt speak. And then Norm was like, <laughs> you, you, you mean sarcasm? <laughs> 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 it's just, just him and, um. Ari Lang just basically shitting on Matthew Perry. It's, it's worth listening to. Sounds good. To. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm definitely in for that. I think I would have liked to have uh, been the love interest of one of Joey's sisters. Good choice. Thank you. Good sandwiches. All right, did let's I, get I, our I, friends. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I blame Edward Norton for not making a more inspiring film, quite frankly. I thought the film was fine. I, it got a lot of criticism for its length. That didn't bother me at all. I, I no. I felt like this one. When we get to the other film, I, I have more criticism there. But I, I, it's like when we talked about the Empty Man. I think like if you want to make a long film, I, I'm kind of on board with that now because I think like it's not really making yeah. huge demands of me as a viewer either. I watch it or I don't. I'm not really going to see a lot of these things in the cinema anyway. So I can break them down into chunks if I want to. And if you, if you're like a creator and you want to make something and make it a bit different, then fair enough. I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah. You know, Ken Burns was a huge fan of this. That's weird. If, yeah. Why? Yeah. He wrote <laughs> a, what he wrote like a, do they call it an op-ed or something for some magazine? Just saying he thought Motherless Brooklyn was one of the great American movies. and So maybe it is an accurate depiction of the 1950s, if Kenny Burns likes it. Well, yeah, Ken Burns would know. That's the thing. Enemy of the show Peter Bradshaw gave this three stars out of five, which seems pretty fair to me. I think old uh, Bradshaw's yeah. growing. He's, he's starting to grow on me. Yeah. I'm starting to respect him. I would respect it. Yeah, I mean, that is a fine review, in my opinion. I've heard some, I, I've read some nonsense from him in the last few days about something or other. But yeah, this is definitely a three-star movie. That's exactly what this is. I was 20. expecting five, Andy. This it completely satisfied my expectations. It was exactly, I realized, as while again, while I was watching it, I realized this is why I put it off, because it's fine. It's a three out of five, and I got what I wanted from it. I'm happy that I've seen it. I, I think it's. I do think the Robert Moses stuff is some of the most interesting in terms of opening the door to people to people learning about a bit more about yeah. Robert Moses because I'd never heard about him until until Norton started talking about it on all his podcast appearances. Yeah, all that all that stuff about um, like you know the the various authorities and it's you know what the hell is that you know like it's just 
something somebody started to be in charge of it. It's not official or anything. Hopefully I'll get around to watching that Citizen Jane documentary I was talking about. But uh, And yeah, maybe maybe even reading The Power Broker sometime in the next 50 years. Oh, I actually have a copy of that right here. Well, I have a copy too. A photocopy. Yeah. Nice. I went to my local library and photocopied each page. Wow, that must have been them together. It was. Staples and paper. You should have just bought the book. <laughs> Never. Never give in. That's how you lose power. Shall I move into the cast? Do you want to hear about some Do of these it. cast members? Yes. So we had old Edward Norton as Lionel Estrog, as we've already talked about. Norton famously attended Yale and during his time there appeared in plays with Paul Giamatti and Ron Livingston. Did he do that famously? It's reasonably famously, right? He went okay. to Yale. You knew that. Well, I didn't know no, about didn't. Ron Livingston. Oh, really? I thought that was like a commonly known thing about Norton. He was a, he's an Ivy Leaguer. He attended Yale. I did not know that. Really, I just put this trivia in because I wanted to hear your Paul Giamatti impression again. <sighs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that could be Nicolas Cage. That could be anyone. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. No, I am not drinking any fucking Merlot. I don't know. I can't That's do it. That's better. No, no. I like that. That's no. fine. Okay, good. Norton is trained in Aikido and Krav Maga. So me and, and Ed Norton Billy both... Billy says Krav, Krav Maga! <laughs> me and Ed Norton both Krav Maga experts. So be careful if you run into either either him or me in the streets. Yes, in indeed. Okay, well, I'm going to fly through some of the typical Norton trivia stories. Let's see. Do it. These are the ones that are kind of well known, right? He recut American History X because yes. Tony K was mental. Yes. He was locked into a three picture deal and forced to make The Italian Job, a film which he refused to promote. Yes, I've heard that too. He made an arse of himself on The Incredible Hulk, and the, pa- and the part was recast with Ruffalo. Yes. Um, I think he that wrote was the script for that as well, but then removed yeah, his name. Yeah, did, he, did, he, he did rewrites on it. He, he was angry about the. the the quality of the script. It's a horrible film. Yeah, that is a weird one in the whole... I feel like that's the one that fits the least with the whole MCU It's the worst film saga. in the MCU. I would need to rewatch it, which I'm not going to. You don't need to, no. Fair play. He played bass on stage with Hole when he was dating Courtney Love. He was dating Courtney Love? Yeah, but this was back in the late 90s. Oh, okay. And he played bass in her band. Yeah, he, bitch. Played, he, yeah he played bass in uh, Hole. He did, a, he did an uncredited rewrite on Frida when he was dating Salma Hayek after Harvey Weinstein had set her a crazy deadline due to her oh, knocking was back nice his sexual advances. Also nice of him, dating Salma Hayek. Nice. Nice. But that was in the period where she had a big monobrow. <laughs> I don't know if she I've never seen that, that film. As, it, me it, neither. Maybe we should fire that up at some point. I watched the opening scene, and the opening scene features... Uh, 30-year-old Salma Hayek as a teenage Frida Kayo, and it's just... I'm on board. <laughs> I'm yeah, on board. it's awesome. It's I'll so sexy. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lastly, Norton also appeared on the roast of Bruce Willis around the time they were making Motherless Brooklyn. I went, and I went back and rewatched Norton's roast section. Have you seen that, the roast of Bruce Willis? No. It's worth watching. Bruce I'll Willis, though, the... strikes me as uh, a man who wouldn't take a roast well, though. He takes this pretty well. Him and Norton seem to be quite good friends, and Norton just basically uses his 10 minutes roast time to talk about how Norton, he's talking about himself, about how he's worked so hard. He's like, I've got critical acclaim, blah, 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 blah. Bruce Willis is basically an idiot, but he's a super successful megastar. So he's kind of He's doing like, a, lot to, a lot of straight-to-video these days. He did that something that Norton references. 
It's actually quite funny. The first time I saw it, I didn't really like it uh, a few years ago. But rewatching it this time, it's it's like a fully formed 10-minute monologue, trashing Bruce Willis and making fun of himself a little. It's worth watching. Favorite, uh, favorite Norton performances? Uh, American History X is obviously be, yeah. up there. That's a good one. And it was nice to see two of the cast members reunited in this. Indeed, yeah. The whole what else? What else? Uh, what are the other ones? Primal Fear. He was Oscar nominated for that. Birdman. He got an Oscar nomination for that as well. I think he's very funny in Birdman, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy him in that. I mean, Fight Club is the obvious one as oh, well, yeah. of course. There was, uh, he for a while, he was one of those actors that for a lot of film audiences, he kind of had carte blanche. They would yeah. just watch anything with Ed Norton in him. He in couldn't it, which miss. Is fair enough. For a period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Cusack also had that for a while. Respect. Not, I'm not saying for me. I'm just saying for audiences. For you I, personally, I've, you gave him a white I've always card. been. I've always been skeptical of that kind of um, adoration. That just unquestioning adoration of anybody, except when it comes to Daniel Day Lewis. In which case, it it is warranted. And Joe Pesci. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Joe Pesci's done some absolute shite back in the day, but then he also had the good sense to retire. Moving on to Bruce Willis, who played Frank Minna. Walter Bruce Willis was born in West Germany in 1955, the son of a German mother and an American father. I a did soldier not know that. who was stationed there post-World War II. He's German. He's a German. Yeah, he is. Oh, Bruce. Walter Bruce Willis. What are the famous Bruce Willis stories? Um, he's a bit of a cunt, isn't he? <laughs> That's it. That's the end of the trivia section. Dude. He's a bit of a dick, I've heard. Yeah, I think he was... I remember Kevin Smith having a lot of run-ins with him when he made Cop Out, which looked like an... I mean, I did watch it, and it was awful. Yeah, but yeah. I can kind of see why someone starring in the film might have problems with it. But yeah, I guess he he started out as a bartender in the 80s before he made it when he was cast in Moonlighting. Uh, he recorded albums as Bruno. His debut album was yeah. confus- confusingly titled The Return of Bruno. Have you listened to any of those? I remember he also had a car. He had a Bruno cartoon, I think, back in the early nineties. I've listened to oh, some of the that songs. Rings a bell. Sort of, it's kind of crooner type stuff. Yeah, it's not good. Definitely a guy who worked in a bar. <laughs> He's got like Irish barman energy. He does. Yeah. Okay, let's have I, a I sing along. A certain amount of cuntiness is, uh, I suppose, excusable if you uh, became famous before the internet, because then you literally were a god. True. You know. I just, like I heard in an interview, like no, it wasn't an interview. It was like some press conference a few years ago. Somebody put up their hand and asked, "Is Die Hard a Christmas movie?" And he said, "No, it's a Bruce Willis movie." Respect. He's right. It's more important than the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Exactly. Speaking of that, Willis has strong views on religion. This is a direct quote: "Organized religions, in general, in my opinion, are dying forms. They were all very important when we didn't know why the sun moved." Why weather changed, why hurricanes occurred, or volcanoes happened. Modern religion is in the end trail of modern mythology. But there are people who interpret the Bible literally. Literally. I choose not to believe that's the way. And that's what makes America cool, you know? Which is why he will be burning in hell for all eternity. (laughs) I love that. Like, Yeah, there's such an actor speech right there. (laughs) Just, hey, professional pretend man. Can you give us your thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? And then the quote ends with, and that's why America is cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, fuck that. Fair play to Bruce Willis. I mean, but like I said, he was famous back before, you know, 
TikTokers could be famous, real famous, God famous. Yeah, back when he had Kate Blanchett to do whatever he wanted. Kate Blanchett, carte blanche. <laughs> ah, nice. Never mind. I feel like that's a joke from something. I I thought that you had made a mistake about who he was iconically married to. Next up is Gugu Mbatha-Raw, who played Laura Rose. The British actress is probably best known for her role as Kelly in San Junipero, the episode of Black Mirror, in which she starred opposite Station Eleven's Mackenzie Davis. Correct. Uh, I would probably know her better from uh, Loki, though. That's right. She was Judge Ravenna Renslayer. I'm pretty sure she's going to appear in future MCU properties. There is a season two of Loki in the works. Yeah, I feel like she's going to turn up in some of the films at some point, too. Apparently, Renslayer is a character of some note. Mm. She's married to, uh, or married to, I don't know if that's correct. Uh, What's his name? Oh, oh, Kang, the baddie. Is she married to him? I think so. You know, I don't know if they've formed an official bond overseen by some kind of church or organization. What's his name again, Kang the Conqueror? The, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, the character's married. I don't mean the actress here. I'm talking oh, about the, right. char- okay. the character of Judge Renslayer <laughs> is married to Kang or is with Kang in a relationship. That's one of the, the hilarious <laughs> things about fucking comic books. Like, how are you going to marry a guy who doesn't know about timelines or he at least he can't see them because if he's, you know, you know what I mean? How are you going to be married to him? It's crazy. And just the same as everyone else, just in a state of perpetual misery. I happen to be very happy. <laughs> Good. Gugu Mbatha-Raw is, uh, in, in 2017, she received an MBE for services to drama. She's a member of the British Empire. Good for her. Does that make be her welcome? a lady? No. I think she's just an MBE. Okay, because you, you, if, you, <laughs> if you're an MBE, you become a sir, don't you? No, that's if you get knighted. That's a knighthood. You need to work your way up to that. Why, why do you uh, not know all these important things about all these Protestant about traditions? Society? <laughs> it's weird that you don't know this. <laughs> what level are you at now? Uh, I'm at a kind of AB, anyone but England. Come on, that's <laughs> <Nice>. solid. <laughs> that is solid, yes. Okay, next up is Eric Baldwin. Eric Baldwin, Eric the greatest Bar- actor of all time. <laughs> Eric Baldwin played Moses Render. What are the classic Baldwin stories? Go ahead. <laughs> well, he killed a lady. <laughs> he did kill a lady. That really, it really jumped up a notch there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> went yeah. From the zero bald- to murder. Yeah, the Baldwin trivia has just kind of everything else has been dwarfed <laughs> by that recent incident. I think. Yeah, uh, he called his eleven-year-old daughter a rude, thoughtless little pig in a leaked voicemail. Oh yeah, I remember. That's that. a long time ago now. That's that's like five murders ago. His wife, Hilaria, came under fire for pretending to be more Spanish than she really is. Oh, yeah, that was funny. That was funny. And then Baldwin shot and killed a woman. <laughs> uh, at the same time, God, Alec Baldwin... We shouldn't be laughing at this. <laughs> I'm not, we're not laughing. He's just laughing at the insanity. He's come under fire a lot recently for... He was. I saw he'd claim. Well, it makes it makes sense that he should send some out himself then from time to time. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. If he, <laughs> exactly. Sometimes he has to come under fire, not just not just hand it out. Uh, what, what's he come under fire for? Sh- shooting I think and potentially, potentially, yes. <laughs> people are <laughs> being a murderer. It's, it's ruffled a few people's feathers. It's ruffled a few people. <laughs> 
Uh, I think he was. There was some argument that he was blocking the probe, the inquiry into what happened. Hmm. But that's he says that that's false, and I know who I believe. Alec Baldwin. He's one of the finest actors of our generation. At the same time, Alec Baldwin was making Motherless Brooklyn. His brother Billy was starring in Backdraft Two alongside uh, returning fire starter Donald Sutherland. Should we watch Backdraft Two? What? I think it's we kind of should. It's a straight-to-video to 2019 release. What? And it's got Donald Sutherland in it as well. Why even bother? I don't know. I quite liked Backdraft back in the day. Yeah, That's I like Backdraft. From 1991 yeah. or something. It's a very, very Ron Howard film, which is mm. solid. But 30 years later, they decided you need to catch up with... Uh, to revisit... Brian Ackdraft, or whatever he's called. Yes, Brian Ackdraft. I believe that's the character name. Next up is William Dafoe, who was Paul (laughs) Randolph. No new trivia for him, but his next film is Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Lighthouse, The North Man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that more than any other film this year. Have you seen the trailer for it? No, but it looks like some kind of Assassin's Creed game or something. It's about Iceland in the 10th century or something. It's a vi- it's an epic Viking I- revenge story, you know. Yeah, and it's got uh, what's his chops uh, in the lead playing a Viking, which he should always be doing, as far as I'm concerned. Is it Alexander uh, you know, Skarsgård or something? That's right. That's the guy. Is that who it is? All right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. See, you knew it instinctively. Who's the Viking? It's him. I think I did look it up yesterday, but yeah, fair enough. That's true. All right. Next up is your favorite cast member, Bobby Cannavale, who played Tony Vermonte. Son yeah. of a Cuban mother and a father of Italian descent, Cannavale grew up in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. His ex-father-in-law was friend of the show and legendary director Sidney Lumet. Huh. Yeah, he's now married to Australian actress Rose Byrne, with whom he has two sons. Yes, I've uh, seen that because, much like any real diligent film fan, whenever I look up anybody's page, I go straight to the gossipy personal life stuff <laughs> yes. and see who they're fucking. <laughs> <laughs> And see if they've procreated. That's important. Cannavale has frequently played villains in projects such as Boardwalk Empire. But I mm-hmm. like to think of him as the world's friendliest man in the station agent. He is a very friendly man in the station agent. Overly yes. friendly. Like, unrealistically friendly. He just turns up and he's selling stuff from his dad's food van. And then he tries to befriend literally everyone in this small town in New Jersey. He's like the world's I... friendliest man. I I probably always think of him as his um, role that a lot of people hated, but I kind of liked in uh, Boardwalk Empire. He was like a one season villain kind of character. Yeah, he was good. At, he's good in that. Was he's called Jip mm. Rossetti or something? Yeah, I think that's I it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that. Yeah, yeah. A lot like a lot of people strike that as the time when uh, Boardwalk Empire started going downhill. But actually, Boardwalk Empire, as it got like crazier and pulpier, I enjoyed it even more. The ending was a bit of a letdown, but I always enjoyed Boardwalk Empire. It definitely did lose something when they started shifting to going down to wherever it was, Florida, or well, when it started to, to get all, all pulpy. Yeah, I don't like any pulp in my HBO shows or orange juice. Neither. We had Cherry Jones who played Gabby Horowitz. That's the one I mentioned earlier. That her character is based on Jane Jacobs, who went to war with Robert Moses. Cherry Jones is a multi-Tony winning stage actress who has most recently been seen on screen in The Handmaid's Tale and Succession, something I have only watched one episode of, despite everyone saying it is the best thing in the world ever. She plays Jerry in that, I I think, doesn't she? 
Yeah, I've seen one episode. <laughs> she wasn't in the episode I saw, okay, as far as I'm enough. aware. Next up is, or finally, rather, not next up, finally is Michael K. Williams as the imaginatively named Trumpet Man. Friend <laughs> is that of, his character's <laughs> name? Yes, he's called Trumpet Man. Trumpet Man to the rescue, using his trumpet. Yes. 1950s superhero. I don't think you could knock someone out with a trumpet, do you? I would, I'll take that challenge. I'm surprised it did that damage to his, to his horn. He didn't seem best pleased. I've never actually held a trumpet. Maybe it would. Are they heavy all yokes? Probably. I think so. I haven't gone around testing, but I'd say they're reasonably heavy. It would be a good melee weapon to wield. Friend of the show Michael K. Williams gained his famous facial scar from a bar fight in New York on his 25th birthday. Wow. What a fight. A as a young man, he worked as a temp for Pfizer, most likely planning the future pandemic. <laughs> he went on to become a touring backup dancer for artists such as Madonna and George Michael. Have you ever listened to the audio commentary of one of the episodes of The Wire? He does a commentary, him and Dominic West. Okay. Michael K. Williams no. sounds way more lovey than, than even Dominic West. <laughs> How do you mean lovey? He sounds like a man who worked as a backup dancer for Madonna and George <laughs> Michael. <laughs> like he's of the MTV generation kind he's, of thing. He's, he's almost giggling. of No, just like really actory, like giggling and going like, yeah, in this scene. And, and, and quite camp as well. Wow. Is, yeah. is he gay? Was he a gay guy in real life? He had kids, but I wonder if it was more of a, you know, pansexual type thing. Like he... Uh, he had sex, sex with, with Peter Pan. He had sex with kitchen implements. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> he only had sex with lost boys. He only had sex with like goat creatures. Yes, exactly. Or uh, Peruvians playing, playing pipes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. <laughs> Peruvian <laughs> yeah. men with pipes. That's true. It's actually, it's actually a wide enough range of sexual partners. I'd say that's why that's, that's why they call it pansexuality. <laughs> His first acting role came in the 1996 <laughs> film Bullet in which he played High Top, one of Tupac Shakur's henchmen. I've never seen Bullet. I don't think I have either, but I also don't think I will. No. But we're gonna, I'm going to leave old Tupac to rest. Uh, a real artistic high point for Williams came with his role as Sergeant James in R. Kelly's magnum opus, Trapped in the Closet. I have seen that. So Sergeant James is the one, his wife Bridget is engaged in an extramarital affair with a man of, of lesser, lesser stature, a man who could be could have appeared in the station agent. Yeah, have you seen Trapped in the Closet? Yeah, I remember a million years ago, Adam and Joe did a kind of breakdown of it on their Six Music show. That's what got me into it, and I bought the DVD. Wow, I mean, it is... This is a long time ago. It's a crazy thing to exist, even. It's great. I would... I'd quite Mm. like to rewatch it. I watched the clip of that episode. That's chapter nine of Trapped in the Closet, which features... Uh, Michael K. Williams. Although I don't think Michael K. Williams was the original actor. I think he was. I think Michael K. Williams replaced the the the, the first actor. I think R. Kelly reshot it. Oh, why did did some unsavory rumors come out about the original actor? I don't think so. I think it was more like you know we could redo this with Omar and R. Kelly went. Uh. Yeah, obviously, let's do that. Let's get Omar in. Oh, because it was in I like two, it... I think he redid it in like two thousand and nine or something. It was post The Wire. Ah. Uh. Because I was just hoping, you know, you'd get, like, some beautiful irony of uh, 
or Kelly not <laughs> hearing someone savory rumors about somebody and cutting them out of a film. No, I think the first guy was too savory. Army, speaking of cutting people out of things, Army Hammer seems to be just done. They've begun yeah. stitching movies around, like, and I looked into what he did, and I mean, what did he do? He has a weird fetish thing. I think he's got accusations against him though, as well, though. Oh, like among, rape and among stuff, does he? Fe- yeah, of like not respecting oh, okay. boundaries sexually. Then he's got like weird, weird accusations against him like, of something of like going down to a hotel in Mexico and allegedly killing people. That's in the f- extreme that I'm sure is like not true. Or is it at least f- there's <laughs> there, at least there's some people arguing back against that one. But the stuff that Although came out in text from... messages is definitely done. Yeah, he's from like the super rich family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. He's from All an right. ultra back, rich background. Back to the back to the Brooklyn thing. Shall we fire through the plot? Let's do it. In 1950s New York City, Lionel Estrog works at a detective agency alongside Gilbert Coney, Danny Fanti, and Tony Vermonte. I I think nice. these those are like some of the only aspects from the original novel that were maintained, like the character the names. names. Yeah, like the names. I think they should have changed them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, Danny Fanti. They're awful. Gilbert Coney, their boss Frank Minna rescued them as children from an abusive orphanage and then waited about 40 years, apparently. (laughs) I mean, is there any other kind of orphanage? Yes. He rescued them as 45-year-old children from the orphanage. I've heard, like, clowns uh, have, like, written letters of protest about the films like it and stuff because it makes people more afraid of clowns do you think orphanages would ever get pissed off in at hollywood in the same way just going this is a wonderful place we treat the children really well <laughs> the first thing they want to know is like is kevin bacon in this film or not that's all we want to know i don't care if it's an orphanage if it's juvie whatever we just want to know Nicknamed Motherless Brooklyn by frank lionel has tourette syndrome and ocd often alienating him from people but his strong verbal and photographic memory make him a good detective. Is his memory linked to the Tourette's and OCD? Is that what they're suggesting? I would say so. Because that is the only, just- that's the only justification I can see for the Tourette's and OCD. I suppose, I mean, you know, it makes him more of an outsider is another thing. But like, I suppose that's kind of what they're playing to. Sort of a Rain Man kind of a deal. Yeah. You know? a but deal. Like, is that a typical thing with people... <laughs> Like, is that like a typical thing for people with Tourette's that they can, you I'm know, not sure. like brothers with Tom Cruise or they can go to the I don't casino. see how it could, I don't see how it could be because like, I, I like, I understand a bit I of feel the, like I watch that's docu- like the old stereotypes. Yeah. From what I understand about Tourette's, I mean, it's, it's a tick. It could be anything. I know a guy who's, who has Tourette's and um, occasionally he just blinks with his two eyes at the same time and that's it. Yeah. Like Norton doesn't have extreme physical tics really. He just has it's no. more kind of or, uh, like auditory or whatever, oral. Working a secret case, Frank asks Lionel and Gilbert to shadow him to a meeting. Lionel listens over the phone as Frank presents documents that threaten a business deal for a man named William Lieberman, who's there with his assistant Lou and an extremely large henchman. I like in uh, the way that that's filmed that... Yeah, it, again, through the looks, phone. Yeah, it looks quite gamey that they're... They're showing that, like, from Norton listening through the phone, he can kind of build yeah. something of, like, a mental image of what's going on. That's quite well depicted. Yeah, I did actually think that was really well done, yeah. When Frank tries to negotiate a high price, the men force him to take them to the originals. Lionel and Gilbert follow in their car, arriving just as Frank is shot. 
They take him to the oh, hospital, no. but Frank dies. 1950s, he has a heart attack, and I was like, they're not going to defibrillate him, are they? What do they have? Nothing. They have to slap him by the face a bit and hope that he wakes up. Did they not have defibrillators in the 50s? I don't know. I didn't see any in that hospital. What did they do in the Second World War? I was thinking about that too. I was like, oh yeah, this is like 12 years post-Second World War. So everyone's a hard cunt, <laughs> basically. <laughs> There's that, but then I was thinking like, surely they've got some more medical insight. I don't really know what they were capable of in the 50s. I guess I'm thinking back on Mad Men and stuff, as opposed to documentaries. <laughs> I base everything on uh, fictional series. Frank's widow, Julia, leaves Tony in charge of the office. Lionel begins wearing Frank's hat and coat, and a matchbook in Frank's pocket leads Lionel to an African-American-owned jazz bar in Harlem. He realizes that Frank's findings involve Laura Rose, who works for Gabby Horowitz, fighting urban renewal. Poor and minority neighborhoods are being bought out and demolished, forcing out their residents. Lionel goes to a public meeting where Moses Randolph, a commissioner of several development authorities, is loudly contested by Horowitz and the audience. Stealing a reporter's credentials, Lionel talks to a man named Paul, who is raging against Moses at the meeting, and tells him Moses is the real power in the city government, even beyond the mayor. Mm, that's a kind of a cool scene. Why does he want him to say his name and address so much? I don't know what that means. Who's that? It's, yeah. uh, it's his brother who's shouting that. Willem Dafoe's yeah, telling yeah. him to say his name. I just thought that had a cool kind of a sinister air, the way he was just staying, sitting there. Hmm. I thought yeah. it was very funny when he demanded the other position. Yeah, he... Give me parks! What was he doing, though? Like, he has... Alec Baldwin seemed to be wearing trousers that were too small for him. Was that like a character choice? He walked really oddly. Yes. I would say that's a character choice. I don't know. I didn't notice the trousers, but I, I didn't if notice that was the way like, he was walking. If that's supposed to be like some kind of reflection of Robert Moses. Maybe. I just mean like that's how he, he was walking like his the circulation to his balls was being cut off. Under the guise of reporting on the urban renewal story, Lionel gets to know Laura. She takes him to a club Frank was investigating where her father, Billy, assuming Lionel is one of Moses' men, has, has him beaten unconscious. Lionel is rescued by a trumpet player and discovers that Paul is Moses' brother and an engineer. He realizes Lieberman is receiving kickbacks on many of the housing deals and that the housing relocation programs are scams. Paul presents Moses with a huge renovation plan to improve the city. Yeah, he's a genius or whatever. That's the, the, the gist we get. And you were a big fan of these jazz club scenes. Yeah, I thought it, that of anything felt like most like of the era. Mm. Um, I thought it was a bit much when uh, Omar later said to uh, Edward Norton that uh, he liked the way he interrupted the music with his Tourette's. Yeah, you were the coolest guy in there. Oh, gee, thanks. It was also not clear to me why they beat the shit out of him outside the club. Because Billy thought that Lionel was one of Moses' guys. But then did Laura also? No. Whatever. Wait, Laura thinks he's a reporter. Yeah, I know, but then... Well, she gets kind of... She gets kind of shepherded away. Yeah. And then Colvin takes him outside. Get an inkling of what might be up? Well, he sees her again later on, and she's kind of like, she still thinks that he's a reporter guy. I don't know. She wasn't able to argue her dad down, and for plot purposes, Norton had to get a shoeing. 
Billy calls Lionel, apologizing for the attack and offering to meet with information. However, Lionel arrives to find Billy murdered, murdered. His death mm-hmm. staged as a suicide. Staying the night with a distraught Laura at her house, Lionel admits his true identity and that he believes she is in danger. Finding Ooh, photos there's, of... There's a ahead. part of that when... Um, yeah, so he's he takes her upstairs and to comfort her, and then he just starts smooching her. I thought, she's just seen her dead father. That's what I thought in that moment. I felt That felt weird to me. It's 1957. Fair enough. Finding photos of Paul meeting with Billy on his own, Lionel confronts Laura, who explains that her uncle Paul is her real father. Paul denies this to Lionel and explains that Frank and Billy plan to get more money out of Randolph's goons against Paul's protests. He begs Lionel to find the evidence. Lionel is brought to Moses, who invites him to join his team and stop snooping with 24 hours to decide. Inside Frank's hat, Lionel finds the key to a Pennsylvania station storage locker containing a property deed and Laura's birth certificate, which reveals Moses is her father. Oh my God. He's my father and my brother. Exactly. Lionel gives the key to Paul and runs into Tony, who's been working surveillance for Randolph. Tony, Tony, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Tony admits that he's been sleeping with Julia and tells Lionel to take Moses' deal since Laura will soon be killed Tony doesn't have a lot to do he does early on you're like hey Bobby Cannavale's kind of taking over and then he just Mm. disappears for most of the film and then he turns up at the end as just he's been taking money kind of of antagonist yeah being a bit of a a useless twat it didn't make a massive amount of sense to me I'll be honest Lionel races to save Laura, stopping her before she enters her apartment, and they flee. Laura knocks the large henchman off the fire escape, and Lou corners them with a gun, but is hit in the head with a trumpet by Trumpet Man, <laughs> who <laughs> drives, <laughs> Laura, drives Laura out of the town. I quite enjoyed that uh, chase uh, and fall, uh, you know, the chase in the corridor, and then he fell down the fire escape. I thought that was really well done. <laughs> you got the briefcase, I got the trumpet. It's all in the game. <laughs> all in the game yes uh, no I thought that was very cool when that guy was hanging from that windowsill and she threw a flower pot at him I just thought that was well shot as an action uh, yeah it was, sh- it was well it was well shot it was <laughs> it's kind of grisly seeing him splat on the ground and his his head start leaking uh, red stuff yeah not, you I know mean, me I good. love yeah, that shit I, I did I obviously at that point you're on their side completely and you're like yeah kill that dick there's a similar <laughs> There's at least a couple of moments in the second film where you're you're like that too, kind of going, yes, inflict violence on those young children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, but, but we'll get to that. So Lionel meets Moses, who reveals that he raped Laura's mother, a hotel employee. Paul forged Moses' signature on the birth certificate and exposure of the secret threatened Moses. Lionel warns Moses to leave Laura alone or he will release the information. He informs Moses that Lieberman is on the take and asks that when Moses has Lieberman killed to tell him it's for Frank. Moses tells Lionel <laughs> Moses tells Lionel to tell Paul <laughs> that his plans for the city will proceed. There's a lot of people telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Men in rooms a whole talking. Lot of telling going on. Finally, ending scene. The next day Paul learns that Moses denied his plans out of spite. While Lionel mails the information about Lieberman to the reporter whose credentials he stole, Lionel drives to the seaside property Frank left to him where Laura is waiting for him. And they sit together and look out across the water. And he doesn't have Tourette's anymore. That's right, because 
Previously, he was comforted by his mother, and now he has a surrogate mother to replace her. Exactly right. And a daughter of, uh, of Alec Baldwin. Indeed, yeah. I wonder, can he milk him for a bit of cash? Mm. Although, no, he makes a, a threat, says, if you come after me, I'll make your life very horrible. And this daughter is not a rude, thoughtless little pig. It sounds like his, um, <laughs> rude, thoughtless little pig. It's, it sounds like uh, Alec Baldwin's character was uh, attending some, um, you, know, you know, 1930s eyes wide shut parties back in the day. Well, he just, there was a maze. That was it, right? What? No, they were having a big party. Was it at the also hotel, an orgy too, though? Yeah, uh, it sounds like it. In your version, in your head, Canon. Why'd you give it out of ten, Andy? Seventeen. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I think I would probably go along with. I don't know if it even. I don't know if I could go as high as seven, but I would say it's better than a six. So for me, it's is somewhere in the mix there. I think probably on IMDb, it's around there, six point something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I had such high hopes for it. Why did you have such medium hopes for it? 6.8. Just because when stuff comes out, I tend to follow the reviews and reaction, the critical reaction to it. And I think most people said like, yeah, it's good, it's flawed, but it's reasonably good. Mm. Also because Norton had been trying so hard to get it made. I know they'd, they ran into some problems. They had a fire in the basement of a building in, in Harlem where they, where they were shooting. And that ended up in at least one firefighter dying, um, which I think the film production got sued over. So I just, with all the stuff that was going on and how long it took him to get it made, I kind of assumed the worst anyway. Well, anyway, boo to this. I should just listen to the critics. I suppose it was another case of the same thing. Yeah, the same thing that would have happened with uh, me wanting to watch the Chronicles of Riddick. I was kind of thinking, oh, everybody's wrong and it's probably okay. Turns out everybody was right. But I, and everybody mother- was exactly right about uh, Motherless Brooklyn. I think. Yeah, I think it's just it's fine. It's a good. It's fine. It's a good film to watch once. I think the noir elements and the mystery work quite well. It's all the other stuff around it that's more of a problem. Did you think it worked more or less than Under the Silver Lake? I was not a fan of Under the Silver Lake. I much preferred okay, Motherless Brooklyn. I preferred Under the Silver Lake. I knew you would. Why did you know I would? Because you watched it first. I feel like you'd made, in, in, a, in your head, you'd already made like a subconscious decision that you were more attracted to watching Under the Silver Lake. It was more to do with the fact that I would be watching it with Belen and I was scoping the two out and saying, which one would she be more on board with watching? So you decided to watch one of the horniest films <laughs> that I've seen for a long time. <laughs> Horny in a very male gaze way. Yes. Andrew Garfield is a perv. Yes, he is a perv. I've made note of that here. Um, (laughs) Have you been to Los Angeles? And like, yes. Did you, you, when you were there, did you feel any of the, I don't know, strange energy that people like to make movies about? Yes, exactly. I I wrote this down. Last time I went to LA was, I've been to LA a couple of times, but the last time I went was in 2019. I stayed in Silver Lake like two streets over from the reservoir. So I know that neighborhood quite well. And it was exactly like this, you know, like hipsters who look like they play Mario on their NES, parties with people looking around for someone more important or cooler to talk to. Mm. Just a lot of wanks. A lot of people who are like tried, 
you know, the like the vast majority, obviously, what do you think the percentages of people is who go to LA to try to make it in like Hollywood and then fail or are still there? Oh, um, 99.99%. Yeah, it's, it's got to be high, like. <laughs> and that's, it's, it's, yeah, that's really got to be big numbers. What makes up Silver Lake? I've only been to LA once and I genuinely did get some of those exact same vibes as well. I yeah. ended up, I remember I ended up at a party and I was talking to a model <laughs> who um, she, ma- she, w- ma- she managed to speak candidly about threesomes she'd been in recently and managed to be gut achingly boring at the exact same time. <laughs> I, I just remember everybody I talked to made me want to leave the party even more. And we did end up leaving because it was just, yeah, very fake, very strange. That's the thing. It feels like, yeah, there's just everything is fake. There's more happening underneath and it might be dodgy and dark, you know. And also it feels like more like a planet than a city. Like we would drive around and then stop in a neighborhood here and it would be like completely culturally alien to the last place we were in. Well, people like to make movies, but what what do you think are the best LA movies? Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang comes to mind. Mulholland Drive, which seems yeah. like a big influence on this. That was yeah. This me, is like was, a Happy Madison version of Mulholland Drive. That was probably my biggest criticism while watching it was like I it made me respect David Lynch even more because mm. I think creating something that surreal but with a sense of intrigue and mystery and interesting characters is harder than it looks. Yes. There's a reason yes. why David Lynch is like a genius and an amazing filmmaker and I just think Under the Silver Lake is kind of going for the same thing but unsuccessfully at least in my mind. Uh yeah, I would say I don't think it has the courage of its conviction like David Lynch does. I think it mm. it sits a little bit in a it sits with its irony a bit too comfortably rather than fully fully committing itself to just, you know, weird otherworldliness, which it, it clearly has an interest in doing, but it also seems to want to parody that kind of genre of filmmaking as well. There's some great L.A. movies that are just like, yeah, Mulholland Drive would be a big one. Uh, the Big Lebowski, Nightcrawler mm-hmm. would be a big one for me, of course. Mm-hmm. I love that one. Actually, one we watched on this show, The Long Goodbye, I think, is a, a great then, movie for Los Angeles. It depends if you're talking about, like, I feel like Nightcrawler could almost be filmed anywhere. I don't think that's so much about L.A. Do you not think that there's something about Lou's character and just how nakedly and ferociously ambitious he is? That's something that speaks directly to Los Angeles. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess he's the same kind of person who'd probably go on reality shows and stuff. Swingers is another good one. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that one, that's all filmed quite close to Silver Lake. It's all in uh, Los Feliz, like the Dresden Club and all that. Have you seen um, this guy's previous uh, films? No. David Robert Mitchell. I looked back. I still didn't manage to watch It Follows. And his first film, the scene in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Under the Silver Lake, they're showing a film on on a big screen that, is supposedly a scene that's like from his first film. Oh, the American Sleepover one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like no, a I haven't watched coming that. of age story. But I think It Follows is like, It Follows is a near perfect film, I think. It successfully like subverts the slasher genre whilst reveling in it on a level that I think surpasses even the Scream films, which I'm also a big fan of. It, do you know what It Follows is about? Yeah, yeah, sex. 
Yeah, sex, and uh, it's kind of <laughs> like... This guy's it, horny. He's horny. Yeah, so, like, teenagers have sex, and then if you have yeah. sex with somebody who's being followed by this slasher person, then uh, this weird, monstrous entity will follow you. But it's really spooky and really effective. Is it, um, like, some kind of, like, parable for AIDS or STDs or something? I think... No, I think it's just, like... I think it's practically written into the story that it would cost fuck all money to make, which it did just before, like, making its 1.3 million budget, I think, back 23 times over. It made, like, a lot of money on mm-hmm. its budget. I think, like, I think it's designed for that. I think it's one of those films like like uh, like Robert Edgar's is The Witch that, as well as being great, functions as a near perfect guest pass into Hollywood and bigger budgets. Now, somehow, Eggers managed to follow up The Witch with even further success with, like, the ultra-weird The Lighthouse, which I loved, but it's, like, weird as fuck. I don't know how it made money, but it did. It made a good bit deal of money. And now he's recently wrapped on his Viking revenge pick that we were talking about. I mean, everyone should watch the trailer for that immediately and hop on my bandwagon, which is warm, so there'll be no need for your tracksuit tops. Anyway... Where, like, Eggers succeeded with something like The Lighthouse, which is virtually plotless, but kind of unspeakably deep. David Robert Mitchell seems to have failed by going the exact same, the exact opposite direction with a, a kind of a plot-heavy, would-be-deep, but is all too often shallow, although maybe that's the point, uh, with Under the Silver Lake. I kind of felt like this film was a bit irresponsible. That's how I felt when I was watching it. I was like, this is huh. feels slightly irresponsible because, and I've since, and that was while watching it, and then I, I looked up afterwards to see if it is the case, and there are big groups of people who are obsessed with this film because they believe it's filled with codes and messages. And you I see, just, I think I, this I film is like making fun of those people. It is, but I just think it also feeds into that in a way. I mean, technically, it's a comedy, and there are some funny moments. You know, there are some darkly comic moments, but I don't know. I just I felt like it was kind of feeding that paranoia. I get, at a certain point, probably when uh, Andrew Garfield beats up the children, I just kind of went like, oh, "Oh, okay, he's mentally ill." Like, I get it. This is a film about mental illness and paranoia and conspiracy theories, yeah, and people who are into that. But then it pays it off at the end with like. No, there is a conspiracy and there is like some thing. And I guess my interpretation of the film is that it's just a statement about the typical, you know, the usual things that we hear about Hollywood. It's an evil, awful place. It's a conveyor belt for for women that forces them into prostitution or the, you know, best case scenario, they get locked in a tomb with a rich old man. Okay. I mean, well, I liked Under the Silver Lake and then I didn't. For those and reasons. Then I, and then I did again. And I suppose the reason I didn't wasn't because I found it, like, irresponsible. I just found it a bit smug, kind of. That would have been my major issue with it. I, I, I like Kind of like, you think you're very clever, but this is very dumb. When it embraced how dumb it was, I, I preferred that, I think. I like the tone of it. Like, it's quite moody and important feeling, but then juxtaposed with Andrew Garfield's pervy fucking slacker <laughs> fella. So it kind of bounces along with an odd energy. And yeah, parts of it did quite make me laugh whether or not the film is parodying or engaging in the tropes of la is anyone's guess uh, but i think in parts it kind of succeeds as a satire 
there are, yeah, you talked about these cryptic clues that are apparently littered, but I would genuinely sense that it's kind of making a parody of that kind of shit and the apparent sort of uh, Jerusalem syndrome that sets upon in uh, many Los Angeles blow-ins. I think Mark Maron actually wrote a book with that title about just that. Stuff like The Homeless King and The Matrix Architect writing loads of songs, essentially, and uh, the plots of the billionaires being buried in mountains with loads of young hotties is, like, that's somewhere between The Big Lebowski and Thomas Pynchon. And I was on board with that. I Like, I enjoyed how ridiculous and, you know, pretty stupid as well. Uh, a lot of it was, but um, I also got like I got a big laugh when um, when uh, that Dracula fella turns out to be a total puss bag. I thought that was very funny. But at this in the, in that same scene, you know, like we get to see his shit in the toilet, and then he's just lying there with his arse out. Those I, I, I there was I, I was just watching that going like, is this necessary? Do we need this? Do I need to see this? <laughs> just to hear you phrase. Just to hear you phrase it like that, it was totally worth it for him. Well, he goes in, like, he's on the toilet, and they do the kind of comic, like, (laughs) dropping massive turds. And then we zoom in, like, he, like, Andrew Garfield pulls the guy off the toilet bowl, and then we zoom in on the bowl. And it just looks like he's the guy's been doing like the most vile black shit. Like, what's that? Is that a comment on, like, he's a junkie or something? Or I like, have no idea. Or, his, or like a vegan diet or something. I feel like it's like there's a commentary on the, <laughs> on the color and consistency of his stools. I'm just laughing at our different reactions to that because <laughs> what, you clearly reacted very yum, strongly. Yum. I didn't like it. I barely noticed it. I didn't like seeing Andrew Garfield jerking <laughs> off. That bothered me. Yeah, that or was even, gross, that part. Even the part where they're having sex and watching TV. I don't know if I've just become a conservative or something, but like it genuinely, they bothered me. I <laughs> totally am a conservative, but it didn't bother me. Well, I guess I'm in the next level above you. I just think, like, this is all haram. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, I quite enjoyed it. I am in no way surprised it did not make any money. He probably might have done one more for them, so to speak, than for swinging the fences like this, swinging for the fences like this. But I'm like, I'm glad it's out there, though there's no hope I'll watch it again, like zero. He's got a new film coming out this year, I believe, or no, it says TBA. It's coming out in year TBA, called called Heroes and Villains. I mean, does it have a cast or anything up for it? So Andrew Garfield is going to be masturbating mostly. Is that actually even in production or like has it got an IMDb page or a cast or anything? I haven't checked. I haven't checked. I was just going back and looking at It Follows right now and that was that was filmed in Detroit. Uh, the guy's from Michigan. I just think it would be more interesting to to see something of his not made in LA. <laughs> I'd rather see a story Set in, uh, you know, set in Michigan. I, I will go and watch It Follows. I will definitely watch that. But I don't know. This I, I feel like the insane... Uh, how bad must LA be that a guy who's maybe not even been there that long is making films just about how awful a place it is? I mean, it must be pretty shit. This, I've been there We're, we're getting like the tip fan. of the iceberg. So yeah. That's what I, mean, I was thinking, and all the stuff well. that's come out in recent years, like in terms of like Me Too type things. No, that God I was thinking that on. as well. I was thinking like I was only there for two nights, <laughs> yeah. and I got vibes like this. Yeah, 
Uh, so yeah, it must be for real. No, there isn't. Uh, to answer your question, there's no IMDb page for heroes and villains. So, so it mightn't even be in the making because I, sure. I would imagine he lost a big chunk of money with this because I because mm. ma- it follows with such a runaway success. I imagine he got re- he got approached and said, and I can't find the budget figure for Under the Silver Lake either, which is never a good sign. People they must have just come to him and said, make whatever you want. With they gave however, him they gave him Kate Blanchett yeah. again. And they then gave he him used her under the silver well. Blake. And he didn't even use her in the film. He yeah. had her actually getting coffees for Andrew Garfield. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk cast? Please. Uh, this is maybe the first time you've talked cast. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I haven't got too much to say. Uh, so we've got... Um, <laughs> it starts we've got Andrew, humans. We've got Andrew Garfield in the lead, of course, as uh, Sam. Andrew Garfield uh, was actually born in Los Angeles, lived there for three years, and then moved to London with his uh, family. Uh, he is a Jew on his father. No, a Jew by his father. His father's a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> is that the correct phrasing of that? That feels slightly anti-Semitic Gar- in tone. But uh, Andrew Garfield says he himself identifies as a Jew. So there you go. He says he's he doesn't artistically say a Jew. He says, I identify as a Jew. Yeah, yeah, he says he's okay. artistically Jewish. Okay. okay. He's got great hair. We all know that. Um, <laughs> it's good. It's good trivia. The one thing that I remarked uh, on his page, was, well, uh, he's famously guarded about his private life, but one thing that I marked is he's made quite a name for himself, but he has not made that many films comparatively with how long he's been around, and I found that interesting. I, I got a sense that his character could be the dog killer. Just because his surname, think? yeah, because his surname's Garfield. Ah, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> fa- fa- favorite, uh, favorite Andrew Garfield performance. What? Ha- hey, what has he done? What are his big? I mean, social, social network, network, social Spider-Man, networks. There was that uh, funny Spider-Man one. moment in this where he has the 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 Spider-Man comic book when he's sitting on the couch. Amazing Spider-Man. I did not. You not know? I did that? not know oh, yeah. no, 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 no. He did a little Amazing Spider-Man nod in this. Yeah, I guess Social he, Network. He, I can't think of. Uh, I can't think of anything where I've been like, eh. There was that period. I have still haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge. What was the other thing he did around then? Uh, silence. Oh yeah, Silence. He was fine in that, but I, again, it was my maybe my least favorite Scorsese film. I reckon he'll be back making Spider-Man before we know it. Yeah, maybe so. Depends what Sony want to do. Next, we have Riley Kyo as Sarah, Sam's new neighbor. Do you know who her grandfather is? I do, because I do backup. <laughs> I just uh, I look through the, the cast too. Yeah, tell me. It's Elvis Presley. I know, that's unbelievable, right? So she's the daughter of Lisa Marie Presley, is it? Yes. Her mother Mental. was married to Michael Jackson for two years. Wait, she's not Michael Jackson's... No. She's, yeah, she's not Michael Jackson's star. Yeah, so uh, Riley Kyo granddaughter of Elvis Presley, temporary stepdaughter of Michael Jackson, although I don't know is that... Was she born then? Probably not. You'd know this sort of stuff up and down. It's just not my style, I'm afraid. (laughs) She's about 30, so that means she would have been... Oh, no, so she would have been alive when... um, She would have been alive then uh, when he was married to... When her mother was married to Michael Jackson. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But actually, looking now, I have actually seen loads of stuff with uh, Riley Keough in it. She's a good, well-able actress, wouldn't you say? What's she in? Okay, so Logan Lucky. Have you seen that? Yeah, but I don't remember her character at all. Me neither. Uh, she's in Mad Max Fury Road, I presume, as one character. of the ladies. Yeah. She, let's see, um, Magic Mike. 
She's just one of the male strippers. One of the male strippers. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she plays she, Channing Tatum. She does play Channing Tatum. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Well, good old <laughs> Riley Keough. To be fair, if yeah, you're yeah, yeah. Elvis Presley's granddaughter, you don't really need to do anything. I wonder, does she get much money off of him? That estate. Must do. Yeah, I suppose. I doubt her family are poor. She's probably hanging out with Army Hammer, eating people's faces. <laughs> it's blood from people's faces. Mm. Next up, we've got, in an oddly minor appearance, but I suppose most of his appearances are minor, we got Topher Grace. Topher I did Grace. not recognize him at all. Have you ever uh, been to Lou's Cafe? <laughs> What's that? Is this, a, is this a quote or is this a real question? What's Lou's Cafe? Aha. Uh-huh. No, Lou's Cafe is kind of the code name for uh, him and his editor mate's little side projects where they edit together already released films into much smaller manageable chunks. Have you not heard of this? <laughs> Have you? This sounds like some sort of Pizzagate <laughs> thing. <laughs> Are you serious? You've never heard of this? to lose cafe? (laughs) Well, they call it... Make sure he is a VPN and Tor. (laughs) He apparently has edited together the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he's done other ones as well. He did um, The Hobbit into one two-hour movie as well, stuff like that. And he cuts a bunch of stuff out, right, as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. He just so, I mean, takes the three films and just puts them together. He leaves all, <laughs> the, all the credits. <laughs> he leaves the credits and the trails and everything. He just puts them all just in. No, 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 no. He cuts out loads of stuff and makes them two hours long. The, his version of the Star Wars prequels is called The Editor Strikes Back. That's and he actually he, he included um, audio from the audiobooks and stuff in that as well, which is pretty cool. I don't know much about Topher Grace. He seems no, like I don't a relative. There's much to know. Yeah, Christopher. I don't think there's there's much to know. Christopher about... Grace. Who's Christopher Grace? <laughs> I believe Topher's short for Christopher, right? Ah, I did not get that. He should have gone for Chris. Okay, I didn't really find much interesting about many other people in this. Sydney too, Sweeney is in it. The, everyone is too modern. You know, what I yeah, mean, it's exactly. like it's, this is a this is a film from 2018, and everyone's young, so they haven't really done anything. Wow, the days of Timothy Carey's in Hollywood are long gone, I'd say. What happened to all yeah, the fun yeah, yeah. people? That's when Hollywood used to be fun. This now is you it. Have to, now you're not even allowed to murder a child. It's gone mad. Are you not? I don't think so. Or if someone it's will poli- make an Under the Silver Lake type film about you. It's political correctness gone mad, Stu. It is. Should we go into plot? Please, tell me about this film. All right. So Sam is an aimless 33-year-old uh, pervert. I added that. Um, in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, interested in conspiracy theories and hidden messages in popular culture and uninterested in paying his overdue rent. We just get loads of uh, him looking at ladies' bottoms to open the film. That's their way of telling us he's a pervert. And looking at that lady, the older lady, looking at her breasticles on her balcony. Yes, what a weird ending that is, huh? I I honestly was troubled by the point... Oh yeah, I forgot about the ending, but... I was troubled by the scene of him having sex with his actress friend and then five seconds later immediately looking out at the blonde lady going into her, into her house and like focusing on, on her arse. Yeah. <laughs> he just literally had sex like three seconds beforehand. It's a fairly leery film. Like It's Dennis Leary. He should be in it. Oh, save me. No, no. Mm-hmm. Rescue me. There you go. Anyway, the public is warned to beware the dog killer who is murdering pets. 
Uh, Sam meets his new neighbor, Sarah, who, despite having caught him spying on her, invites him over. I mean, that's a porno storyline. Anyway, the two get high and watch How to Marry a Millionaire. But when her roommates interrupt as they begin to kiss, no, have you? No. It looks fairly leery as well. Yeah, Dennis Leary's in that too. All right, good. Uh, So Sarah suggests Sam leave and that they hang out the next day. So far, so good, says Sam. But then in the morning, Sam discovers Sarah and her roommates have moved out overnight and becomes obsessed with learning what happened. Noticing a strange symbol painted on the apartment wall, Sam trails a woman from the apartment to a series of elite Hollywood parties, encountering the pop band Jesus and the Brides of Dracula and a performance artist working for a prostitution ring of struggling actresses. All seem connected, but Sam struggles to find any meaningful pattern. At this point in the film, are you interested at all? Yeah. I, uh, the whole disappearing thing, thing feels like it's going down some Mulholland Drive. Also, it's massive. It's it lifts a couple of plot points directly from Inherent Vice, both the That's book and the film. Still on, still on the list. I'm going to watch that before Licorice Pizza. I was actually going to hopefully go and watch Licorice Pizza today, so maybe not. But oh, up yours. Can't see that we'll for see. a few weeks. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, anyway, at his apartment. Sam sees a news report detailing the discovery of billionaire Jeffrey, Jefferson Sevens uh, burnt to death in a car with three women. Sam recognizes Sarah's hat at the scene and a small dog similar to Sarah's found dead. Sam contacts the author of Under the Silver Lake. Okay, this is where it lost me. When they introduced the author of Under the Silver Lake, that's when I went like, okay, okay. They, they, he specifically cast the guy from Mulholland Drive who goes out to yeah. the back of the diner and gets scared by the creepy homeless man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I made point, a note of that as well. Yeah, at that point you're like, all right, okay, now this feels like David Lynch fan fiction again. David this Lynch the, fan fiction. That's what it this, is. This, that's what yeah, this is. This, you're right. this is. this is the fan fiction double bill. <laughs> yeah, totally, actually. But at this, the stuff with the comic is exactly where it lost me, to be honest. I was just immediately... And we're actually both watching a series now that revolves around a comic that's very good. So that's there you true. go. Like, And also, have you ever seen Utopia? Also revolves around a comic book? Also very good? Uh, I, I do. I want to watch Utopia. It's the fact that it got cancelled that pissed me off. Yeah, I was, that was, I was gutted when that got cancelled. Anyway... Yeah, so Sam contacts the author of Under the Silver Lake, an underground comic uh, about neighborhood urban legends. He tells Sam that Sarah's disappearance, the dog killer, the owl's kiss, a naked woman in an owl mask who seduces and kills people in their sleep, and messages in pop culture are part of the same conspiracy and has installed security cameras throughout his house. Later, the police find the author dead in an apparent suicide, Sam enters the house and reviews the security footage, discovering the author was killed by a woman dressed as the owl's kiss. Yeah, this is the section where majorly it uh, lost me for a bit, because I just thought all that stuff was really stupid. Uh, just the naked lady in the owl mask. I thought that was just Yeah, that dumb. bothered me. That's why I was kind of more on board with the idea of Andrew Garfield being schizophrenic or something. Yeah, I just the idea of any like, of that being real is disappointing to me. Yeah, it's which it's kind of supposed to be, I think, in the end. Um, but also, it's like it's like it's like what I was saying earlier. It's you know, he wants to be David Lynch, but doesn't have the courage of his convictions. Let's say he's not yeah. willing to lean into it. He's sitting at an, an ironic distance away. Um, it's, it's very anyway. it's very Silver Lake in that way. Ironic there hipster. You go. 
following clues hidden in Jesus and the Brides of Dracula songs, Sam meets the homeless king who brings him to a bunker underneath Griffith Park leading into a supermarket. With the help of the performance artist and her friends, Sam meets the songwriter, a fabulously wealthy old man who claims to have written most of history's popular songs. When the, so- uh, when the songwriter tries to shoot him, Sam bludgeons him to death with a guitar that purportedly belonged to Sam's musical idol, Kurt Cobain. That's gross, isn't it? Yeah, they do the old, the old classic smashing a guy's head in and it's like a piece of fruit or something and you're caving the entire face in. Yeah, it's just horrible. I didn't like that at all. I nor did like and I like the idea of the scene, just not in the middle of this movie. Yeah, I don't know. I I I guess I it just so what they're tr- what are they trying to say that all popular culture is just mass produced by the money people behind it. There's no real art to any of it. I mean, I don't know. Like- I don't I, I don't know that I don't know where they're saying anything exactly. I think that's I think that's a parody of a conspiracy theory. Mm. Is what I think. I think mm-hmm. it's making fun of it rather than engaging in it. Mhm. Fair enough. You know, cuz it's ridiculous that scene. It's insane. But I assume I, I, like I I do think there is some accuracy to that in terms of like a lot of pop music is written by old old white men. <laughs> have like written songs for so many artists it's like it's just that's like a fact but yeah but i mean the heightened reality in that scene is sure. taking the piss i would say right okay um, yeah but i mean i i don't know i was trying to read further into of like films that are made in the hollywood system are kind of constructed in the same way not necessarily that there are hidden messages about yeah you know, uh like a secret group of people trying to be kind of buried alive in tombs or anything to be transported to another world but just like i guess they cover it with the idea of of selling sex just that a lot of or the the majority of artistic output of hollywood is geared around selling things but that's not even a (laughs) that's not even a secret (laughs) so i guess not i like i don't know like just him above above in his house like the old like you know it is directly taking the pace out of the sort of people who fold dollar bills into showing the twin towers collapse. Fair enough. Yeah, that the the scene with the with the comic book guy with the dollar bill highlighting the owl on it, mm. <laughs> the owl's yeah, yeah, kiss. Yeah. You're like, all right. I've seen people do that. Yeah, I've seen. I mean, I remember like years and years ago, probably when I was first in the states in like 2001. Um, I do remember someone folding the dollar bill and the looking at the pyramid and all this stuff. And you're like, all right. Yeah. At a party in the Hollywood Hills, Sam meets Jeffrey and Sevens's, what a dude, awful name. Jeffrey <laughs> no, Sevens's having fun with that. daughter, Millicent, also running into his now famous ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. Millicent convinces Sam to go swimming in the nudie in the Silver Lake Reservoir. She gives him a bracelet identical to Sarah's that belonged to her father and is shot dead by unseen assailants and sinks to the bottom of the lake, mirroring a pose from Mm. Sam's favorite issue of Playboy. Did you pick up on that little visual reference? Yeah, I I thought that was pretty clear, like almost too clear, if anything. It was kind of in your face. Mm. Do you know what this reminds me of now, the way we're breaking it down and talking about it? Have you ever seen um, Southland Tales? That was one of the notes I made early on was like, I assumed that this was, what's his name? David, David Robert Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. assumed that, I assumed that this was his second film. I didn't realize yeah. he'd made one 
I didn't realize this was his third film because to me it had all the the kind of Southland Tales vibes of like difficult yeah. second film after your big success is it or difficult follow up to a big success let's say because for Richard Kelly after Donnie Darko he went mm. on to make Southland Tales and yeah this is very Southland Tales it's just the madness of LA it's not as bad in a as kind Southland of Tales I don't think I think Southland Tales is maybe not as bad as we think it is. I've seen a lot of people recently saying that it should be reappraised again. Yeah, reappraised critically. I do remember a bunch of characters in slow motion dancing to the killer's song, the whole like, I've got soul, but I'm yeah, not a while, while Justin Timberlake's ex-Marine pounds cans of beer and yeah. bra- looks directly into the camera. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a cool sequence, actually. But anyway, whatever. But then, uh, but it, 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 that does. But the reason that was interesting, to, or the reason that I connected that there, because I was like, all right, so because after that, Richard Kelly made the box, and then he recut Donnie Darko, and his his recut version explained everything, and was just you were like, oh, all right, okay. So it was like he kind of accidentally stumbled across a really good first film. So I was kind uh-huh. of worried that the same thing would happen to David Robert Mitchell on this. Yeah, well, no, I think this has got, like, this has more to it than Southland Tales, I'll say. I Like, I remember, I went to the cinema to see Southland Tales. Mm, yeah, I watched it. And uh, I remember just being blown away by how bloated and awful it was. I don't think this is that, uh, but there's definitely some aspects of the plot that I would completely axe. And would, this, may- would this be better if it had the rock in it? Yes, I mean, what yes. wouldn't be? Sam manages to escape and uh, combines the bracelet the author's cereal box prize, and a Legend of Zelda map from the first issue of Nintendo Power to reveal a location absent from web mapping where he finds a man and three women in a small hut. As Sam holds them at gunpoint, the man reveals the truth. Throughout history, wealthy men such as himself choose to lock themselves in underground bunkers similar to the one Sam discovered, much like Egyptian pharaohs, in order for their souls to ascend, accompanied by three wives. Sarah and her roommates were Sevens' wives, and their debts were faked. Their bunker has been sealed, but they can still be contacted uh, via uh, video telephony, which is a word. Sam yeah. speaks Telephony. with Sarah, who confirms that she entered the bunker willingly. At peace with her faith, she and Sam share an emotional farewell. Sam begins to pass out as the homeless king arrives to capture him, angered by finding dog biscuits in his pocket. When Sam tells him that he did not actually have a dog and kept biscuits only in memory of his painful breakup and in the knowledge that he would never see his girlfriend's dog again, the homeless king lets him go. Returning home, Sam spends the night with his neighbor whose parrot repeats incomprehensible words. From the balcony, Sam watches as his landlord and a police officer enter his apartment to evict him. They notice one of the walls has been painted with the strange symbol seen earlier which Sam now knows to be a message from the conspiracy to stay quiet. What was the whole reason for the homeless king having him chained up and asking him about the dog biscuits? What was that? I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. I assumed there was like, they were hinting at that maybe he was the dog killer or something. Mm. But then he has like a moment of truthfulness and then the the homeless king is like, all right, on you go then. Do you know... Once again, this podcast and us discussing this film has caused me to sort of reassess it. And I've just kind of been Sorry. thinking like, well, I've just kind of been thinking, I mean, 
go fuck yourself making making a <laughs> film like this. Do you know what I mean? I, like, despite the fact that I didn't hate watching it or whatever, I'm kind of there now thinking about the different elements of it. And I'm just sort of thinking, man, not many people get to make movies. Make a fucking effort, will you? That's what always worries me about these type of Hollywood conspiracy, Hollywood's a shithole type films. It feels mm. like a write what you know type scenario of just people over a period of years getting drawn into this black hole of shittiness of just kind of constantly getting ground down by LA and then they need to get this out of their system but like it doesn't it often doesn't make the most interesting of films for for viewers who don't live in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean in a way this almost feels like the room or something. It's in it's in the same world. It's the same type of thing. Yeah, I think it is. It is like Which is it, disappointing. It, 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 there is, there's a <laughs> pretty strong connection between the two. Yeah. All right, well, fuck this shit anyway. Not a great week. Huh. We do a toss? Yeah. Okay. I have a coin. Let's do it. Tell me what film you have selected for next time. Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville? Melville Jean-Pierre yeah. Melville's uh, film Bob Le Flambeur. Which uh, translated means Bob the Flamber. Bob the Flamber, yes. But he's, <laughs> can he about, flamb it's it? A, it's about a flamber yes, named he Bob. He's he, a flamber, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He flams the local library <laughs> once a week. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you got? I chose uh, Justin Kurzel's film from late last year, Nitram. Nitram. This is the first I'm hearing of this film existing at all. He's a very really? prolific filmmaker, isn't he? He is. He's made <laughs> a certain number of films. No, but uh, I mean, but, I mean, like one a year. It seems like now. Yeah, I don't know what the came most recently. Most recently before this was in 2019. He did True History of the Kelly Gang, mm-hmm. which is about R. Kelly. And then before that, he was <laughs> Assassin's Creed, Macbeth, The Turning, Snowtown. Yeah, he's got a fair few oh. films. This one is the uh, biographical psychological drama based on the 1996 Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, Oy. where a man killed a lot. It was like the the big sort of turning point in Amer- in, in Australian gun ownership. Oh my god! I mean, so this having is a seen his film, version of that, having seen his film Snowtown, like one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen. It's I no really joke. don't want. I don't want you to win. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to win this week. All right, what are my options? Your options are heads or tails, because I've got a UK coin again. Give me head. <laughs> it is tails, I'm sorry oh, to tell you. <laughs> fuck. Oh, this is going to be a schlag, I know it. Um, Nitrum. Okay, well, we're doing that. Well, we're going to be pairing it up with his film that came immediately before that because I'm a big fan of that book, actually, and I've yet to see the film, The True History of the Kelly Gang. So uh, we'll get to do... Yeah, yeah, we'll do some double double whammying thereabouts. Okay, next week we're back talking about what? Next week we're going to be doing uh, a newer release, and that is the 2021 Netflix film Don't Look Up, which everyone has been talking about. I've seen a lot of uh, people in the media saying it's awful. <laughs> and I've seen a yes. lot of just random acquaintances on social media going, actually, it's quite good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife really liked it. My wife really liked it. <laughs> she says it's quite nice. My wife. Uh, 
my <laughs> my wife. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm not no, not engaging in other people's memes. Good. I can come up with my own memes. We've got right. our own memes. Yeah, our, my my a, new meme is now sending pictures of Ethan Suplee to represent whatever like whatever emotion I'm feeling. Uh, we've got. Uh, do you know? I heard a sad. I read a sad fact about him. What's that? Just fat. Well, he had to put back on weight after he lost. Yeah, because he couldn't get movie right. roles. That's right. I read that too. That sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. He well, he said he couldn't get movie roles. He meant like like filled roles. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's why he was in Hollywood. He was in Hollywood for movie roles. <laughs> He's in, he, he stayed with my name is Earl for so many years. Yeah, man, there's roles on set every day. <laughs> I, try to make, I, try, I try to get the best roles in Hollywood, but they keep giving me acting jobs. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ethan Suplee. I know you listen. Uh, yes, indeed. All right. Well, um, so uh, goodbye till next week then. Goodbye. And a, a piece of advice for you. Don't look up. Ooh. Bitch moves. She moves. Then he looks up. The cabinet. He walks to the cabinet. He's close to the cabinet. Now he's opening the cabinet. Now pause the movie. Cause what I'm about to say to y'all is so damn twisted. Not only is